We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Good afternoon, everyone. And thank you very much for joining us today for what promises to be a truly insightful discussion on addressing ways that we can reimagine the educator pipeline. My name is Shannon Penrose, and I am proud to represent the American College of Education as the Senior Vice President of Education Solutions. I'm thrilled to moderate this session with our three panelists who will collectively explore some key issues and share their insights on potential solutions. I know you'll find the conversation very valuable and actionable. And with that, I'd love to welcome our expert panelists today. Dr. Mort Sherman has over 30 years of experience in raising standards closing achievement gaps, and uniting stakeholders. He has served over 40 years in public education with 25 as superintendent. Dr. Barbara Jenkins dedicated over 30 years to students. As superintendent of Orange County Public Schools for 10 years, she has led them to win multiple accolades, including a 97% graduation rate. She's earned superintendent of the year honors in Florida and nationally and is currently a board of trustee for the American College of Education. And Dr. Sandy Husk has served in executive roles for various organizations, including ASCD, Go School Box, and AVID. As former superintendent of Salem Kaiser Public Schools, she implemented a highly regarded strategic accountability plan. She has served as superintendent in Tennessee and Colorado within school districts there. Barbara, Sandy, Mort, thank you very much for making time to connect with us today. And as we all know firsthand, the educator talent pipelines that once met the hiring demand of school districts are no longer up to the task. Teacher shortages stem from a wide range of issues, a lack of qualified candidates in certain subjects, difficulty retaining teachers due to burnout, and lack of advancement opportunities. And I'm just naming a few. As a result, school districts across the country are struggling to ensure access to enough high-quality educators to meet the needs of their students. And it's very clear that we are going to need innovative solutions that get more qualified candidates into the profession and also support teachers already in our classrooms through improved retention and promotion programs. As a college whose mission is to serve, we have partnered with Whiteboard Advisors to publish a white paper with input from education leaders and experts to seek insight into innovative solutions to retain and sustain a high quality talent pipeline. In today's conversation, our panelists are going to explore innovative ways to reimagine the teacher talent pipeline, tapping into new talent pools and redesigning programs to set teachers up for lifelong success. To guide our discussion, we'll explore questions across three key themes. Challenges facing the teacher talent pipeline, maintaining quality and rigor, and third, and not yet the least of important, but I know it's on the top of mind for with many district administrators, budget constraints, and seeking additional types of partnerships. 
We have a huge uh, convening of folks from a number of states, almost every 50 states in the nation are being recognized here today, but we also have colleagues from around the globe. So welcome you all for joining us. And Mort, Barbara, Sandy, welcome. And thank you for convening with us again today. We will begin our conversation by hearing your perspectives and insight about the challenges facing some the teacher challenge. Starting with Barbara, we'll go ahead and begin with you this morning. The teacher shortage is a complex, multifaceted issue. And in your view, what are some critical challenges contributing to the declining teacher pipeline? And how can alternative pathways help address some of these challenges? We'll start with Barbara and then we'll open up to the group. Thank you, Shannon. So a couple of things come to mind right away. First of all, I don't think anyone would dispute there's a disturbing trend. It's not new, but it's getting worse. So this last year, 60% of our urban, large urban districts opened with vacancies. Well, half of all schools opened with some kind of vacancy this year. That's a problem. And I think the reason for the increased vacancies uh, is multifaceted, but let me just mention a few reasons. Number one, teacher salaries in this country are significantly too low. Teacher salaries are low. It's not attracting more into the profession. It goes without saying we've known that for some time. But secondly, I think the cost of college education has just been insurmountable for many families as well. So in the last 40 years, uh, the cost of college has gone up 169%. Teacher salaries have pretty much barely kept pace with cost of living needs in this country. And so over the last several years, 2008 to 2019, there's been a 35% drop in the number of graduates coming through colleges of education. Now, we weren't getting enough teachers through pure colleges of education to start with, and the numbers are going in the wrong direction. Thirdly, it probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, Shannon, uh, the politics surrounding public education today are making it less than attractive, if not intimidating, for folks who might consider entering the profession. Everything from how we serve our LGBTQ plus population to book banning has made it a bit frightening for some to enter the profession. And then we all know the pandemic had a horrific impact on public education. Numbers that were already lacking were exacerbated by the pandemic. So not only did we not gain enough new teachers, we began to lose inordinate amount of teachers to uh, resignations and retirement because of the pandemic. All of that put together makes a perfect storm for increased vacancies. One large urban district that I'm aware of, they serve 200,000 students, but they still have 200 vacancies in the classroom. That's just unheard of, and it's certainly not acceptable. And so I think it makes a very clear case that we have to have alternative methods of certification to prepare and get more teachers into our profession and into the classroom. Barbara, thank you. It's um, you say the words perfect storm. And it I, I think of who wants to be a teacher today. There's the the ignite. How do we ignite instill that passion again? Um, Sandy, we'll kind of bring it to you. What what are you thinking? I think Barbara definitely identified the the biggest issues. But I think what I've seen in my 47 years also is the the pressure of accountability 
even though it was intended to really support teachers, has kind of sapped a lot of the energy and the joy from the profession. I think people tend to think highly of the individual teachers that they know for their children or their, you know, people in the community, but as a profession, it doesn't feel like it's being as honored and supported in the nation. I think it's very easy to get to a meeting and talk about declining NAEP scores without really describing what's going on with the student demographics and saying that there's lots and lots of ways that kids and teachers and principals are winning every single day, but that doesn't seem to be the general theme when you get into the policy or the political portion of it. And of course, that's what the media picks up on. And that's just very discouraging, especially if you're the one in the classroom working really hard every day with large class sizes, constantly growing paperwork and accountability systems that don't always make sense with the teaching of the whole child. And I I think that as a community, business leaders, faith-based leaders, elected officials really need to help us get back to that conversation about honoring the profession. Thanks, Sandy. More, what, uh, give us your, some insight. Um, I, I want to pick up on what both Barbara and Sandy said and tell you a couple of stories. I had a good fortune a couple of decades ago to study with John Goodlad and Madeline Hunter at the University of Washington. And John had just published his book, A Place Called School. And if you open the front of that book, uh, you'll see this picture that many of us in education know well. It's a picture of um, a classroom with the desks lined up, the desks nailed or screwed to the floor with an inkwell. And, and uh, John had a a researcher at the time, I think his name was Ken Sorotnik, and he talked about visiting 110,000 classrooms. And in the introduction, John wrote and Ken wrote, you know what? I couldn't tell what decade I was in when I opened those classroom doors. I couldn't tell whether it was in the 1890s when that picture was first taken with the rows of chairs or whether it was in the year 1980 or 1983 when he published his book. And I'm often, I often think of the other story as a, a psychologist whose name is Marshall McLuhan, and many of you might know of his work. Um, he was at the University of Toronto, and he wrote that, you know, we often go down the highway at 60 miles an hour and look in the rearview mirror and see a kind of stuggle wagon. And then we turn back to the front and try to understand where the future uh, is, how it's coming ha towards us. And so I, I think in education, you know, we are uh, in some ways um, the subject of the, the, what's happened to us is we, we've created, you know, Barbara and, and Sandy and I as superintendents believe deeply in paying teachers well. We believe in creating the conditions that are going on. And yet we often see the profession itself and the teaching and learning function itself as a Conestoga wagon rather than what might and should be. And so this question of how do you attract um, I, I think it's, I think Barbara's 100% correct. Every single survey says pay teachers more. There's no question about that. But there's other pieces about that. You know, what's the ecosystem? What's the environment? Cara Brazil, who you might know with the dean at uh, Arizona State University, the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College, speaks about the question is not the pipeline so much as the nature of teaching and learning. We are still having those rows of chairs. We are still lining them up in a way and still teaching with a frontal approach when we know so much more about teaching. And so this idea of what's going to attract, I believe we need to look deeply at not just all the set of benefits, 
but about what's going on in schools themselves. I think there are distinct opportunities. And by the way, I'm very optimistic about the future of education. Um, I truly am. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in education. It's the core of our word. And, and so I, I think that there are opportunities we have to ask them as parallel questions. How do we bring people in, make sure they're paid well, get in small class sizes, and at the same time, look more deeply at this old model of one teacher, one classroom, it's really hard. It's really difficult to do that. And so um, this conversation today, I hope, is one of many that happen nationally about what else we could be doing. So it is multifaceted. It's really complex. And I think there are answers out there. Shannon, I'd like to spin off that for just a second, if you don't mind. Please do. No, please more, do. More when you talk about that, it kind of starts leading me to to want to add that when we do that structure of having those classrooms look that way, it prevents us from having the quality of time as professionals together to listen and to learn from each other. And I think the, you know, in some ways people think, well, you go to college, you get your degree, you get your credential, now you're a teacher, you know, and you are a teacher, but you're also in a progression of teaching and learning your whole career. And because we're so locked into those schedules, the way we have them. It's very challenging to bring high quality professional development teachers. It's out there. And, you know, and people love the professional development that we can offer, but how do we make it work within those schedules? Um, and I'm like you, I am optimistic. I don't want it to sound like these three folks that have been around a long time are all pretty grumpy about what's going on. <laughs> no, no, we believe there's hope. We believe there's hope. But I want to yeah. mention one other thing, Shannon, when we talk about the cost of college, this nation has got to deal with the student loan issue. But if you consider teaching profession professionals, they deal with student loans at a much higher percentage than they used to in years past. And so for those 35 and younger in the teaching profession, they've got significant student loans. Older teachers, not so much. But the cost of a college education in this country has got to be dealt with and the impact of student loans and how they drag people down into debt has to be dealt with. And we know uh, those underrepresented populations, minority families and families who struggle with some economic issues are not going to be drawn to teaching because the income does not pay off in the end. We just have to acknowledge that. Hey, Barbara, I, I have a question for all of us, but you just triggered something. You know, the generational questions when we when I went into teaching a long time ago, I knew that was my profession. I knew I was going to stay in education, whether it's a teacher or principal or superintendent. And, and I've read, I don't know the statistic, maybe one of the three of you do, but this issue of generations coming in saying, well, how long am I going to stay at IBM? How, am I going to, how long am I going to stay in, in Sandy's school district or Barbara's school district? And so this question of mounting debt and then the changing nature of staying in one job, I think the generational shift from when we first started is pretty significant. And, and Shannon, I don't know if you've done research on that, but it just hit me when you're speaking that way, Barbara, we need to pay more attention to the shifting demographics and long-term commitments of staying in one place. Mark, you're spot on. And it's, I couldn't, you couldn't have asked a better segue. Um, but Sandy, you brought up the whole child we're looking at, Barbara, you're talking about equity of opportunity of access. How, how do we allow folks who want to come into the profession with a for, 
affordability, affordable solutions to allow that and what it's going to make attract the attractiveness. But yet more to your point, we're dealing with a, a newfound generation of professional that's going to stay within five years. So if we have them for five years and we went into the profession knowing that this was going to be, to your point, our career, how do we make this our career? What do we do and what are those steps along the way that, Sandy, you were talking about on those professional journey as the educator? If we are working in a system now that we have professionals coming in and we have a three to five year window to see if they're going to stay, what does that look like when it comes to the induction, the onboarding and keeping it attractive? So. Set is salary the only piece, or what are those other motivational items that we can do to come into play? And so I think this is very interesting that you're talking about that. I do want to expand a little bit. And Sandy, we chatted earlier about the idea of grow your own and the elements of how do we start thinking about building out that base. But if we think about Grow Your Own programs and teacher residencies, which are becoming more attractive and gaining momentum as ways of expanding and diversifying a teacher pipeline, what do you find to be some benefits in these types of programs and pathways? And most importantly, what advice would you give to districts looking to start those programs? Yeah, I, I will definitely address that. And I want to also kind of link it to what you just said. I remember back in um, Colorado in the 90s, we had a really good partnership with the University of Colorado for master teachers and beginning teachers to work together. And it was really hard to make the change because there was no incentive at the university level other than practical kinds of research projects for them to do it. There were no financial incentives whatsoever. But the dean there at the time, who's now next to the top of the president at the university, I think he's about to retire, Phil Stefano, with persistence and a lot of work with the faculties, he did it. In, in Tennessee, after I left, they started to grow your own program, three different branches of it, quite successful. You cite it in your paper. And in Salem, Oregon, thanks to the assistant superintendent of HR and some university local leadership, we put together a seamless pipeline of attracting people into the schools of ed, having the exit of the school of ed be the beginning criteria for getting a job in Salem-Kaiser. So I mentioned those three programs because they're out there. What doesn't seem to happen is them going to scale throughout a state or throughout a region. And I, I think, in my experiences, one of the reasons I'll come back to again, universities want to do a really good job with any of the careers they're developing, you know, allowing people to access education and developing them into. But the incentives for them to do something other than research, other than publish, does not motivate those long-term, take-it-to-scale kind of pathways. So my advice to university leaders, deans of schools of education, superintendent, HR directors, is that we really need to bring those communities together. And we have to establish the vision of why this is going to be so much better for the local community and the individuals involved. 
and then be very persistent and kind to each other. I know the group that designed that work, they had some great help from a nonprofit in Portland called Chalkboard. But there were a lot of really frustrating days. There were a lot of union uh, uh, contract issues that we had to be very kind and very creative and really hang in the conversation. But the union was right there at the table with us because they wanted those results as well. So I think it's forming the community, being patient, focusing on the vision. I think one of the benefits that we miss when we talk about these grow your own pipelines is the pride in the local community. You're saying to a group of people, Barbara referenced earlier, sometimes it's certain neighborhoods, certain economics, certain races that don't get exposure or opportunities. And even though you may be doing it after they're a paraprofessional, instead of hopefully reaching them when they were in high school or junior high, middle school, there's a real pride of community in the development of giving different pathways. And I could go on and on about the ladders for teachers once we bring them into the population, but I'm going to take a breath and let Barbara or Mort add to that. I'm sure they have a lot to say. Sandy, I love what you said about uh, the community participating as partners in impacting this great need. So a Grow Your Own program that partners with higher ed is certainly noteworthy. Problem is the numbers are going to be small because of the cost. So a university that we partnered with in Central Florida gave us discount costs and a partnership. They helped us with our paraprofessionals who wanted to enter the profession. And then a private uh, college actually gave full scholarships to our paraprofessionals who wanted to enter the profession. The capacity to bring that to scale is still limited. If you get 39 teachers uh, over a course of four years, that's really not plugging all of the needs and all of the vacancies, but it's better than nothing. Uh, additionally, I think you can tap into philanthropic partnerships and others who are willing to contribute, business partners, chamber of commerce, who are willing to contribute to help make sure those teacher vacancies are filled. We have to be creative. And we. my advice to districts is to, even if you start small, you have to start down those pathways of growing your own, from your own high school students who might consider the profession with the right incentives, to your paraprofessionals who are doing very similar work. Their hearts are already in the work. You can attract them. You just need to help them get the actual certification so that they can become teachers. You know, Barbara and Sandy, I, I was just doing a quick look, and I don't have an answer. And again, Shannon, maybe you do. But I'm wondering, what do we pay paraprofessionals when they come in? How much per hour? Is it equivalent to going to work at McDonald's or some other fast food restaurant? I think what I've heard across the country is you even have trouble getting the paraprofessionals into the classrooms. Um, let alone getting them into uh, programs that they could afford. And Barbara and, and Sandy, I think you just hit it perfectly. Is how can we establish grow your own programs which are affordable? And and you know I don't know if, if you did this in your districts, but we often use this term where I was called breakage. You know between when somebody retires and when you hire a new staff member and that term, and like what are, what's a dollar differential? I really do believe for most districts there's a return on investment when we look deeply at, at, at taking some of those. Dollars and putting them into 
the opportunity for paraprofessionals or others in the community or not in the school system to become part of a grow your own program. And the other piece is that whether it's through service centers across America or, you know, BOCES or IUs, wherever else you might have, I think there are opportunities for school systems to work together on grow your own programs. I think it is one of the keys for, for our future. ASA is actively engaged in, in trying to work with NAESB, NASSB, that organization, Sandy, you know well, uh, ASCD and SD and trying Trying to figure out how national associations might work together to support this this initiative but i absolutely believe uh, shannon to your question itself that grow your own programs are fundamental um, and not just being dependent upon universities or colleges um, to attract students but we need to be more assertive and provide financial incentives back to my earlier point just the last thing i'll say is this on this issue is this question of debt and staying in a profession. If we're going to take this new generation and continue to laden them with debt, why would they come in? What's the incentive to come in? What's the incentive to stay? I, I think there's so many uh, pieces lined up against new teachers um, that we need to think differently about how to go about attracting and retaining. You and know, Shannon, um, it helps to have a, I'm sorry, Shannon, it helps to have a district champion too who can really help lead those efforts. Uh, you, you've got to have a point of contact. My chief of staff, Bridget Williams, did a phenomenal job uh, from uh, partnering with Rollins College for those paraprofessionals who got their degrees uh, to working with our local University of Central Florida to make sure we had a STEM graduate program filled with teachers from one of our more needy uh, schools and getting them their master's degree. You've got to have a champion who will keep driving uh, those efforts and those partnerships. Shannon, when I think about... Um School districts, it's a rather contained unit, right? You know where the boundaries are, you know where the schools are. And so when you have a, a strong leadership belief in using data and using professional development, you can, you can thrive as a community. What we don't always have is a view of the higher ed world. We don't always have a view of all the variety of teacher preparation across higher ed in the nation. And where are those spotlights that are more affordable that have evidence based on high quality, and how can we use those spotlights to help enlighten some of the other higher eds who I know want to be, you know, really rocking it also, but how can we build that community across teacher prep programs so that you all are learning from each other as well with affordable prices? You're bringing on a really important point. And I'll answer that in just a second, but more, you have something to say. Well, I want to go back to something that Barbara touched on that Sandy has now said twice, and I think she's so on target and we shouldn't leave it. Uh, you know, it's the turnover. So how, what creates it in part is people are coming in, but there's also a lot of folks leaving the profession. And, and Sandy, uh, I just, I think you hit it so beautifully, this question of how you create the environment through professional learning and different models that make people want to stay in the profession once they get in there. And, and I, I, you've had huge success nationally in trying to work on that problem. So I just want to make, I want to give you another chance because I think you're so on target with that statement. Well, I, you know, whether I've had success, it's always been because of the team. But this concept of, I, I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. To me, accountability ought to be a joy to celebrate because now we know where we're good and where we need help and how we can support each other. But when we use it as a hammer, when we use it just to label a school and to assume, I always would be so frustrated. You can put in as many labels on the school and the district as you want, 
doesn't mean we're going to try harder because we were already trying as hard as we could. <laughs> and so coming back to that, uh, oh, and I know I had one other thing I, I wanted to say, and I don't know when this was, but I remember I read it at some point where Minneapolis was spending so much money, the corporations there on workforce development, and they made a conscious d- decision across the community to invest in the original workforce development, which is K-12 post-secondary, and then getting into the workforce. That's the kind of partnership that I'd love to see. That's interesting, because when you're thinking about starting within the community, you have a paraprofessional who is probably going to be a stellar educator. And our research is telling us that a paraprofessional is making on average twenty-seven dollars to $37,000 a year. So if we look at what the annual salary is, so more to your question, yes, there are other equivalent jobs out there that could be. But when we're looking at one of the most esteemed and important roles that you have in a child's life, it comes, Sandy, to your point on accountability. And it's a systemic change starting with district leadership that goes full scale, that how do you look at your community, investing into your community to become the next showcase of educator, because that is the embodiment and representation of the community. But yet, to your point of professional development, it doesn't just start with teacher onboarding and induction. As we follow the career, where is the district responsibility in providing the professional learning, not just for the classroom management, but beginning to understand the nuances and rates of change within technology? And how is that going to be a long-term, sustainable, scalable pathway? So I think there's a lot of budgetary items in pieces that we have to really think about, too, not just looking at how we build you know, bodies. But I believe there is a question in our chat, but I'd like to kind of take a look. Um, a lot of right now in our chat, people are really nodding their heads and doing a lot of agreement here. And we're going to go ahead and start um, looking at our last piece. And I wanted to segue into budget um, as this is the time of the year for budget. And I remember what I, what I needed to do when I was at the district level on forming and putting out professional learning pathways. But Mort, we'll go ahead and start with you here. And when we're thinking about the financial challenges, we've heard the fiscal cliff. We know the end of the, the ESSER dollars. But how might budget constraints exacerbate a teacher shortage and turnover? You, we were talking just yesterday about declining enrollment, but what are what can districts do to avoid layoffs to con- continue with the consistency of not just teacher quantity, but teacher quality? Yeah, and, and I have to just jump back for a second to something Sandy yeah. said about accountability as I come into the fiscal question. Uh, I yeah. testified before a Congress years ago about the, the uh, 
the federal law, the federal legislation, No Child Left Behind. And I, and I said, you got it wrong. You had the wrong name. It should be called No Child Left Untested. They didn't think that was funny. They didn't take uh, my suggestion. <laughs> but I, I thought it was hysterical, and I still do. It's sad that well-intentioned piece of legislation just did not fulfill what you described before, Sandy. And, and the other thing I was thinking about is that the beating shall continue until morale improves. If you, I mean, you've probably heard that, is that we often do that, whether it's fiscally or, or others. I, I want to begin answering that question, Chan, about budget by asking um, about a, some satisfaction, like what is, how do you provide incentives? Years ago, I don't know, Barbara and Sandy, if you remember, Buffalo and a few other districts actually provided uh, revised contracts to provide incentives to teachers uh, and, and teacher leader options where they were paid a premium above base salary. So when we begin this question of how do we approach um, the fiscal issues, Shannon, I think there's multi-layers to it, but it also has to do with teacher satisfaction. And Barbara said it in her first sentence today, there is not a survey of teachers that comes out where you don't look at pay as a, as a factor. Every single survey. The most recent one last year, the Mary Mack College teacher survey, um, when that came out, it listed four or five. The top one was pay raises. And so, you know, again, I'm going to show my age a little bit. There was a book from the 70s called School Teacher. Um, Dan Lordy, I think, was the author. And he said, you know, teachers don't go into get wealthy. We know that. But they want to be paid well, fairly, and to be respected. And, and I think in that are the same lessons that exist all these many years later. And so as I begin thinking about this piece, I just have a quiz. And Sandy and Barbara and Shannon, you could join in or anybody in the chat could join in. But I wanted to get to this question of fiscal accountability and opportunity by thinking of the question of satisfaction. And so I looked at the Merrimack College uh, teacher survey, because what would it take to pay well? What would it take to, to compare to other professions? So ready for the quiz? Um, of the physicians that were surveyed, what percentage of them were satisfied with their profession? Physicians generally, it breaks down by different categories. The answer is 72% of all physicians in America are satisfied with their profession. This one is next one, it's really, it's fascinating. Accountants, what percentage of accountants are satisfied? The answer is 93% of all accountants surveyed are satisfied. Yes, Sandy, that's kind of how I reacted. <laughs> you know, that accountants love their jobs because their days are numbered, you know, that, that old joke. How about engineers? The answer is 63%. Clergy, and this is a good thing, 90% of all clergy are satisfied. And, and overall, 65% of uh, workers in America are satisfied with their jobs. That's much higher than I thought, and it's going up post-COVID, which is the other thing. Um, how about teachers? Um, do we know the number for teachers? How many are satisfied with their positions? Go ahead, Barbara, take it. Bud? 20%? No, actually, uh, it increased last year. Um, it's up to um, 66% are satisfied. It, if you look back at the Met survey from 10 years ago, it was down in the 40s and 50s. It's coming back up, and I can't figure out why, unless we're all just really happy that the pandemic is over. But uh, but at the same number, when you dig deeper, 35%, 35% of teachers say they're planning to quit in the next two years. So you have 65, 66% are happy, but the rest are leaving. That's a huge opportunity. So this question about finances, 
um, for me is like, why is that a challenge? We know that the core of our work has to be teaching and learning in the classroom, and we have to set that as a priority. And so when you begin budget discussions, when you look at all of this, I've always, my, my staff, and particularly in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, used to say, um, you know, problem public education, we keep on taking, I put my hands up in front of my administrators, and so we keep on adding and adding and adding until my hand goes off the screen. And we never leave things behind by setting priorities. And what I believe as a superintendent is that the financial challenges are going to come with the financial cliff and with the mental health issues of declining enrollment, core to a budget is teaching and learning. And you've got to invest in your teachers. And if you set a priority, if you set as part of your long-term strategy, how you provide appropriate professional learning, as you provide good salaries, long-term incentives, I think that's core to a school district budget, supporting the children that we serve. Those are, those are great points. Those are great points. Uh, I would probably um, more just add uh, one or two thoughts to that. I, I think... Again, there's an opportunity uh, with this fiscal cliff approaching. There's an opportunity for us to make the right decisions. So teacher positions are not going to be the first ones on the chopping block, especially when many states have class size requirements. We're going to lose a lot of our ancillary services to students uh, with those budget cuts would be my prediction. But here's the thing. I think when there are limited resources, Districts have to be careful to concentrate those resources for the greatest return on investment. And so while you'd love to spread the money across several different entities, when there are limited resources, you have to concentrate those resources to where you're going to get the greatest return on investment. So I need a quality product. I need a reasonable price. I need teachers. And so if I have to choose between partnering and paying large sums for uh, supporting teachers, uh, teacher candidates in a program, and another choice through one of our online uh, resources that are high quality, uh, that are five times less expensive than the brick and mortar university, then I'm going to need to concentrate my limited resources where I can get the greatest return on investment. Uh, I think when we have budget shortfalls, it forces us to be very frugal and how we spend those dollars. And I think there are solutions available to us, including uh, the product at ACE and several other entities that can help you stretch those limited dollars to have an impact. Sandy, what are you thinking? I think people are our greatest resource. And I think Mort and Barbara both said it just perfectly well. Um, I also think that we spend a lot of time in education thinking about how to motivate short people, young people. <laughs> and I think our jobs as administrators and as leaders at the school and district level, we should really spend just as much time thinking about how to motivate and encourage adults because they're our pipeline to all those kids. I, I remember when I took my first administrative job, I was supervisor of staff development, St. Rain Valley, Longmont, Colorado. And they asked me, what's the difference between teaching kids and teaching adults? And I said, there are some differences, but mostly if you care about them, if you figure out where they are, if you have a vision for where they want to go and you hang in there with them and keep educating and learning and educating and learning, try not to be quite as judgmental. We, we're not judgmental when a, a seven-year-old 
doesn't read well yet, right? We go back in for motivation. Um, and that's what I think we need to do. And that is a precious resource that doesn't show up always on the finance sheet. A lot of you know what? Oh, that's a critical point. That's a critical point because this generation will not, we already said, will not be lifelong employees of one employer. However, if we can show young people pathways for their career, ways to make more money, we can help you get your master's degree and make a lot more money. We can help you enter even the leadership pipeline where there's a gap and turnover as well. Mort has lots of information about turnover for principals and superintendents. We can show them a pathway where they can earn more money and take on more responsibility and leadership. That is certainly an area that's going to encourage uh, those who are entering the profession to stay in the profession. One reason new teachers leave quite often is because they don't feel like they're doing a good job. They don't feel prepared on top okay. of the fact that they don't get paid well. And so there, there are remedies that we can certainly replicate and take to scale in districts. Thank you. I'm going to pose final question to the three of you, just as we're wrapping up, just a, a summation. What would you were back in leading district leadership today? What would be most important to you all right now? And we'll go ahead. I think we should let Sandy start. No, I think Sandy should start. <laughs> She's going to go back. Sandy should start. She is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, wasn't even, I wasn't even hearing that personally. For those of you that don't know, I accepted the interim position at Portland Public Schools in Oregon, and I'm, and I'm honored and thrilled to be going in. It's a a five-month length, and hopefully I'll be able to support all the wonderful educators there as they get ready to hire their long-term superintendent. I don't, I don't think that change answer changes much for me from today than it did when I started in my first superintendency. I, I think when, when you move into a leadership role, one of the things I want to know first is what are we holding each other accountable for? Because there's a different you know, like the board is accountable for one thing and the superintendent's accountable for something else and it all has to align and mesh. And then you have to set the vision so that you stay motivated around those accountabilities. It's not chasing academic achievement numbers or graduation rates. Those are just the things we use to know that we're making progress. But what we're really doing is focusing on the vision of all kids exiting K-12 with all kinds of opportunities for their next choice after they finish their 12th grade year, whether it's post-secondary, straight into workforce, apprenticeship, military, whatever it is they choose to do. Um, and then the other part of that vision is having the employees know that they're contributing to that on a daily basis. Every employee, every bus driver, every secretary, every custodian, every teacher, every paraprofessional, I could keep naming them but their work counts. They're, they're what makes the difference for those kids on a daily and an annual basis. And that's where I start any leadership role. The rest of it, the details of how we're gonna get there, we can do that as a team. And I'll do that more in two weeks. <laughs> well, you, you know, Sandy, um, you gave me some reflection about that, and 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 maybe I should go back and be an interim as well, because in, we all want a second chance and a third chance to have uh, learned 
over the years, what we might do differently or different, better. Do you remember when we first started that sometimes the advice for teachers, don't let them see you smile until December? Uh, you know, and and it's what terrible advice that was. Awful. And there's some early superintendent language like be tough, be strong. I think, Sandy, what you just said uh, is textbook wonderful uh, about supporting um, teachers and, and the, those who support our kids. And it has to do with setting the environment. Um, the, the answer, Shannon, that I would give is a reflection of uh, the book, Good to Great, is a monograph that accompanies it, asking the question of how would you, um, in nonprofits, go from good to great? And there's a story, and I can never remember if it's the Cincinnati or Orchestra or the Cleveland. So let's just say it's in the Cleveland Orchestra, just for a moment, because it's a remarkable group. And the, and the, and the, the monograph talks about, um, well, how would you go from uh, being uh, a great to a remarkable world-renowned orchestra. How would you know you were there? What are the indicators? And they looked at ticket sales. They looked at all those sorts of, uh, you know, return on investment questions. And if I remember the monograph correctly, Sandy and Barbara came back to, let's count the number of standing ovations. Because the, uh, I mean, is that just like a simple, straightforward, is, is that the audience tells us whether or not we're an internationally renowned orchestra. And so to our teachers, I would change what I did and go back and give standing ovations each and every day to, this, to the teachers who work their hearts out for kids. So it's a tough question, Shannon. Um, I, I love what both Mort and Sandy said. I think if I were back in um, the leadership role, I would do everything in my power to help unclog and replenish the teacher pipeline, because that is actually how we will exist and how we'll move forward in the future for our young people. And so I would want every single career changer, someone who's thinking about entering the, the profession and every paraprofessional, not just teacher assistants, but cafeteria assistants, anyone who is in our employment, I would try to make pathways available for them because they already have a heart and a passion for children. That's why they're usually doing some of those jobs. And they already have some exposure to some expertise in the field of how to deal with children. And so I would make every effort available for them to have a flexible, high quality program that is also affordable uh, for them. And if I can't partner and, and help bring those costs down, I want them to be affordable for those individuals. I would do everything in my power to replenish the pipeline that is just down to a, a dribble, for lack of a, a, a better analogy. And then for all of the adults who touch our children, both inside the schoolhouse and the school system and in the communities, I would help them all to come to one basic agreement that we are all in place to make sure every child comes to school to get a great education, but that they also feel respected and safe. That'd be my, my hope and dream if I were starting over again. Whole child, whole educator, whole community. I, I really appreciate you answering this final question. It's always been top of mind. And if we were to go back, what what would we do? Not necessarily differently, because Sandy, I, I really embrace what you're saying, because that those core tenets definitely are true. Um, we're looking at, in the sake of time, there have been lots of just affirmations in the chat. But what I'd love to do is if we could pull up our slides once again, I'd love to open this up to our panel 
to do some questions and answers. So anyone who is in the chat, if you have any questions that are just burning, you'd love to be able to ask, please, this is the time to ask. And as I'm looking, lots of just, uh, Sandy, lots of people are cheering you on for Portland. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, we have a couple questions here. Let's take a look at the first one. Um, about giving opportunities, even in high school, do some practicums and try out some real life opportunities and learn what it means and what it takes to be a teacher. This looks like it would be uh, more of an apprenticeship type of question. Let's see if we can. There was one that was just put in. Um, this would actually be good for the whole group. How can we balance flexibility and access in programs with making sure they're high quality? What would that look like? Yeah, I'm assuming they're talking about teacher prep programs. Is that how you're reading it? I'm reading it that way as well. Yeah, one of the things, I, I referenced this in one of my first answers, but at the University of Colorado, and I, I think Phil Stefano stole it from University of Arizona or somewhere else that was doing a great job, the beginning teachers were actually getting practicum credit while being uh, mentored by the master teacher and all of it aligned with the graduate level that class that they were taking. Uh, and they just took one each semester that they were taking in the evening. So let's say the master level class they were taking was on science of reading. The master teacher was mentoring them and coaching and uh, demonstrating science of reading, and they were getting college credit for that. So it was a shortened amount of academic time and an expanded amount of practicum time. And it worked really, really well, uh, as long as we could keep the university professors motivated and wanting to do it. And Phil did a great job of that. But those are the kinds of things I think it's, it's almost like on-the-job training, but linking it to some academic background so you're getting dual credit. You're learning it feels good because you have a partner and a teammate who's got more experience and you're getting academic credit. And by the way, the way that that was structured, by the end of their second or third year, they had their master's all done. And so the, the benefit is they moved up on the salary schedule also. That's exactly what I was thinking of, Sandy. It's on-the-job training. Uh, we had a program for, number one, we had, did have our high school magnet program for those who wanted to be future educators to give them exposure at growing our own, and we have scholarships available for those students as well. But when it comes to positions like teacher assistants, they cannot quit their job to go do a teacher internship. And so making it on-the-job training where they're getting credit for their learning and they are actually engaged in uh, the profession during the day and taking their classes at night provides the flexibility without the hardship of having to leave their job and do an internship. Uh, public education is one of the few internships that are unpaid. And so you're going to see more and more apprenticeships uh, like Tennessee did uh, through the Department of Labor that help individuals keep their jobs or get paid a decent amount of money as they're learning their profession. Love that. Thanks, Barbara. Um, question, uh, I think we've got time for one more question. And for the group, do you believe that the increase in the number of charter schools is having an impact on the pool of potential teachers? 
leading to a teacher shortage in K-12 public school districts. Well, go ahead, Mort. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any evidence or research that supports that hypothesis. Um, in, in fact, um, what I'm seeing uh, in a number of states is that folks are coming from charter schools who are not certified in some of those positions and coming into public schools. And so I think there's a, I think there's a balance between the two, but I'm not seeing it as a, as a draw away from our service of public school educators. Sandy, were you going to say something? I was going to say something very similar. I, I think the only time you see, uh, you know, well, let me say it a different way. When you have huge spurts of, of student growth, you're going to need more teachers no matter what. It doesn't really matter which schools they're in. Um, and if the growth of the students doesn't match the growth of the number of teachers, this is Barbara's point that she opened with and continues to uh, provide good evidence to support, that's when you're going to have a problem. And she also said, and she's right, we've seen this coming for years. It's just getting much, much worse right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would submit also that charter schools have vacancies as well. They they are not uh, without the same challenges around attracting and holding on to enough teachers. And Mort's point is certainly worth noting. And we could probably take something out of their playbook because they have not been in some states as rigid around the requirements for teacher certification in order to fill vacancies, quite frankly, I believe. The points well made. Thank you all. Um, going ahead and just kind of moving into wrap up time, I really want to thank the three of you. This has been just, I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. It's been such a wonderful, rich discussion and going through and talking about some just key elements. Um, the valuable insights that you have all been able to provide has been very rich for the discussion. Key takeaways that I actually have within my notes is the element of accountability, looking at how Barbara, you so eloquently said, unclocking a pipeline, because what is it that we need to do to build out? This is a systemic change. And what do we do to make sure that we are, regardless of how long our talent is staying within our systems, if it is one school district to the next or you know, we want to keep them in the profession, but how do we do so to make sure that they are not only attracted, but wanting to feel satisfied to stay in? And more the uh, the data that you shared in that survey was very eye opening for me. And I really appreciate that very much. Um, looking at what we're taking away from the American College of Education is a teacher's college. Uh, we are looking at ways to truly innovate with school districts and representing what we would call an outside-the-box approach, needing to reimagine a talent pipeline. ACE's mission is to deliver an affordable, accessible online program grounded in evidence-based content with relevant application. We are partnering very intentionally with school districts to provide credit-bearing professional learning tailored to preparation and talent development goals focused on igniting the passion, fostering creative confidence, and elevating those inclusive mindsets. We're very, again, very intentional with what we do. I would encourage district leaders to partner with colleges, partnerships such as the American Coll College of Education, or what we would call ourselves ACE, 
to strengthen your teacher workforce with proven human-centered programs. For your aspiring educators, we can explore organizations that would provide pathways that would be very tailored to their goals. And once again, we really want to thank today's panelists uh, for joining me today and supporting this discussion. By working together to implement the strategies covered, we can ensure that every classroom has a high quality teacher prepared to serve all students in this very important time of change. Let's keep learning and exploring solutions. And Mort, I really like what you said. This is the beginning of many conversations, and we hope to bring you back very soon again, because I believe we're on to something that's very dynamic that will provide the educator workforce that our students truly deserve. And so thank you all very much again. Shannon, can I quickly say, I think I yes. speak more to you and Barbara to say, we also want to thank the participants. They're out there doing the work. We greatly appreciate that. Thank you all. Sandy, well said. Thank you very much. We had a wonderful listing of folks from around the globe. And I just get tickled to see that because these are our folks doing the good work. And thank you very much for saying that. And so from on behalf of the American College of Education, thank you, Mort, Barbara, Sandy. We are very excited to see your next endeavors. And Sandy, very much good luck in the next two weeks as you start into your interim superintendency. Very excited for you. And once again, very much appreciative of your time. Uh, everyone have a great day ahead and we look forward to seeing you all very soon. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.